You're listening to KDVS Davis. Whenever I'm in Davis, I always listen to 90.3 FM. Great station, great people listening. They're the greatest, believe me. And I'm telling you, I love it. Melania loves it. Ivanka loves it. Eric loves it. Donald Jr., I have no idea. This is former Vice President Al Gore. The previous person, the only time I've ever heard him tell the truth, inconvenient or not, is what he just said. 90.3 FM, KDVS, really is the best, and I mean it. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where it is and at what time you are listening. We're glad that you are listening. We would like to think that we maintain centers of listenership in Davis-Sacramento as well as in Chico. But we have to admit that physically, the operation of Radio Parallax has shifted somewhat to the west. In fact, we were recording most of our programs now in the East Bay, the bay being that of San Francisco, one of the world's most singular estuarial systems, often described as the largest estuary in the western part of the New World. And by New World, we refer to both North and South America, the Western Hemisphere. Our good friend Mr. Donald Rose posted on some social website recently (laughs) a question asking for someone to name the name of a continent that didn't start with A. I know we're not quite sure why Don does these things. But I was intrigued by the fact that a discussion immediately rose over whether Europe was legitimately a continent. All of the first respondees to his question, of course, noted Europe as one obvious answer. But this caused one smart aleck to chime in with, Europe is not a continent. Einstein's OMFG. This prompts Radio Parallax to respond to this. Enrico Fermi by noting that Europe has been noted as a continent since ancient times. Now, these days, when you use the term continent, you generally refer to a large body of land completely surrounded by water. And, and while this sort of addresses the issue of the fact that Europe and Asia are physically connected and thus should be called Eurasia, I've always puzzled over the fact that since Africa is clearly connected to Asia, why isn't it all called Afurasia? And while this has prompted Mr. Merlin to say, well, Afurasia to you too, the more we think about it, the more we like the terms. Yeah, so if you have any ability to influence your local geography department or any poll with same, we suggest that you float this as the new term for the Eastern Hemisphere. And if we're going to get quibbly about this, Einstein's, you'd have to ask why it is we talk about North America and South America when you can actually walk from one to the other. That's if you want to walk through the Darien Gap jungle in Panama, but hey, it can be done. You cannot, however, drive a car through this region because it is apparently virtually impassable, 
and everyone seemed to think that's really a bad idea. You can drive from the U.S. through Mexico, through Central America, and down into Colombia. Although we have to admit it certainly would make it a lot easier to ship Colombian cocaine north. And speaking of shipping Colombian cocaine, and how's that for a segue, we would note that our good pals who work at the Central Intelligence Agency have evidently been somewhat influential in the current documentary airing on the History Channel titled The Road to 9-11. Someone we consider a good friend of this program, the illustrious Professor Peter Dale Scott of UC Berkeley, wrote a book some years back titled The Road to 9-11. When I first heard the title of the History Channel documentary, I wondered if Professor Scott had a hand in it, and I realized immediately, no, that wasn't likely. And... This program is probably worthy of a few moments of commentary by us. The CIA, in this case, appears to be the good guys. Their analysts, of course, appear to have been all over bin Laden and were strongly suggesting, if this documentary is to be, to be believed, that we launch a strike to take him out. Now, in the wake of 9-11, it looks like, well, maybe that would have been a good idea. And yes, we did commemorate this past week that diabolical attack on the United States of America by apparently Saudi Arabians, given that 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi and it appears to have been financed by Saudi money. And the main planner of the operation, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was a Saudi. Not to mention that fellow named Osama bin Laden. But at any rate, according to this documentary, the CIA were the good guys, and it was the politicians like Bill Clinton. It was strongly implied that because Bill Clinton was involved in the Monica Lewinsky scandal, he pusillanimously refused to allow the military to launch and take out bin Laden when they had him in their crosshairs, if some of these CIA analysts are to be believed, and frankly, we're not sure that they are. This correspondent was especially intrigued to see CIA official, referred to as Kofor Black, who I think was running the CIA at that time, or was a step down from the head. I'm, I'm not sure. I guess he wasn't the actual head of the CIA, which was George Tenet. He was one of the bigwigs in counterintelligence. And on this very program, I guess it was about a dozen years ago, we heard from actual CIA agent Gary Bernson how it was they had Osama bin Laden surrounded at Tora Bora. This was after the 9-11 attacks, I would add. But nevertheless, they had him surrounded in Afghanistan and when Mr. Bernson asked for 5,000 Army Rangers because they had him bottled up and could get him, he was refused, relieved of his duty, and brought back to the United States. Kofor Black apparently was the perp that relieved Mr. Bernson of his duties. For more information on this, we refer you to our archival broadcast of our interview with Gary Bernson about his book, Jawbreaker. We, of course, have no way of verifying what goes on truly in the world of intelligence. But we like to take a pot shot at it on a regular basis on this program because, well, one just should. And let's face it, the mainstream media doesn't like to do that much. But going on nothing more than, I guess, my gut, I was rather inclined to believe Mr. Bernson, our interviewee, in uh, indicting the actions of Kofor Black. So when I saw in the history documentary... Mr. Black saying, all it took was a president to say, kill bin Laden, sign the president, and it would have been done. And when the interview asked him, well, why didn't that happen? He just kind of said, well, you know, he said politicians and took a sip of coffee. We're kind of suspicious that 
doesn't really summarize the whole story. That said, there was a lot of interesting stuff in that documentary. A lot of it we think was pretty spot on. But again, we should pause every so often to confess to the fact that we are very definitely not experts on the topic of intelligence. But it is worth pausing to again contemplate the fact that the mastermind of 9-11 is in custody, he's in Guantanamo, and his name is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, not Osama bin Laden. I think it's fair to say that never really sunk into the public consciousness over all of this, and I guess therefore it's our duty to remind people of that fact. One could certainly make the case that even if Osama bin Laden had been taken out in one of those cruise missile strikes, it's entirely possible, maybe even probable, the 9-11 attacks would nevertheless have gone forward. And as far as the intelligence lapses that took place surrounding 9-11, well, we refer you to the work of Professor Peter Dale Scott and others. Let's, let's talk about something else, shall we? Um, there's a rather hair-raising cover story on the current issue of The Economist magazine, which yours truly is now again <laughs> subscribing to after a, a hiatus. The title of the cover story article is Nowhere to Hide, What Machines Can Tell from Your Face. And since we've been rather skeptical of some of the so-called advancements made by technology of late, we think this one is worth pausing to discuss. Not long ago, I heard one of the developers of this algorithm, which is central to our discussion, uh, on a radio program. I forget which one it was. He was very sanguine about um, how what they'd come up with could be interesting, could be important. And um, as a sidelight, this whole thought about having privacy was just a silly idea. That, that was a thing of the past. That was not something that would be available to us in the future. And that didn't bother him at all. But I think I should pause blabbing for a moment and just read from the article in The Economist. This comes from the Science and Technology section, and yet it made the cover. That's a little unusual. To quote from the magazine, Modern artificial intelligence is much feeded, but its talents boil down to a superhuman ability to spot patterns in large volumes of data. Facebook has used this ability to produce maps of poor regions in unprecedented detail with an AI system that has learned what human settlements look like from satellite pictures. Medical researchers have trained AI in smartphones to detect cancerous lesions. A Google system can make precise guesses about the year a photograph was taken simply because it has seen more photos than a human could ever inspect and has spotted patterns that no human could. AI's power to pick out patterns is now turning to more intimate matters. Research at Stanford University by Michael Kozinski and Yilan Wang have shown that machine vision can infer sexual orientation by analyzing people's faces. The researchers suggest the software does this by picking up on subtle differences in facial structure. With the right data sets, Dr. Kaczynski says similar AI systems might be trained to spot whether might be trained to spot other intimate traits such as IQ or political views. Just because humans are unable to see the sign in faces does not mean that machines cannot do so. 
The researchers' program, details of which are soon to be published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, relied on 130,000 images of 36,000 men and 170,000 images of 38,000 women, downloaded from a popular American dating website, which makes its profiles public. Because facial detection technology was used to select all images which showed a single face in sufficient size and clarity to subject it to analysis, this left 35,000 pictures of 14,000 people with gay and straight, male and female, all represented evenly. The images were then fed into a different piece of software called VGG Face, which spits out long strings of numbers to represent each person, their, quote, face print, unquote. Skipping ahead a bit, the article notes that when shown one photo each of a gay and straight man, both chosen at random, the model distinguishes between them correctly 81% of the time. When shown five photos of each man, it attributes sexuality correctly 91% of the time. The model performed worse with women, telling gay and straight apart with 71% accuracy after one photo and 83% accuracy after five. In both cases, noted the magazine, the level of performance far outstrips human ability to make this distinction. Using the same images, people could tell gay from straight 61% of the time from men and 54% of the time for women. This aligns with research which suggests humans can determine sexuality from faces at only just better than chance. Now, while this, well, this might evoke a big so what out of many listeners, it should be pointed out that this technology could be used by governments or other agencies in locations where homosexuality is illegal and where, homosexual, and where homosexuals are subject to the death penalty. We here at Radio Parallax think that this should make some of us a little nervous. It should be noted that these impressive numbers are based on a selection of gay and straight in a, in a one versus other circumstance, which means that in the real world it will remain considerably more difficult to pluck people out of a population. Nevertheless, the fact that artificial intelligence can make many, many comparisons far more than a human can and come to correct conclusions well, it should be disturbing. In fact, let's let's rewind the tape a little bit to see what it said earlier in the article about how in the future AI may be able to tell your IQ, may be able to discern your political views. It it seems so far fetched, but again, machines are able to make thousands of comparisons and adjustments that well, the human brain is unable to do. And in a related story, The Economist also found a little bit nerve-wracking, we have this. It now appears possible using a DNA database to reconstruct what you look like. To quote from this article from the same magazine, Craig Ventner, a biologist and boss of Human Longevity, a San Diego-based company that is building the world's largest genomic database, is something of a rebel. In the late 1990s, he declared that the international publicly funded project to sequence the human genome was going about it the wrong way. He developed a cheaper and quicker method of his own. His latest ruffling of feathers comes from work that predicts what a person will look like from their genetic data. Human Longevity has assembled 45,000 genomes, mostly from patients who have been in clinical trials, and data on their associated physical attributes. 
The company uses machine learning tools to analyze these data and then make predictions about how genetic sequences are tied to physical features. These efforts have improved to the point where the company is able to generate photo-like pictures of people without ever clapping eyes on them. I do have to note, as an addendum to this article, that the example provided in The Economist magazine of the computer-generated face based on DNA compared to the actual face of the person did not, to my eye, look like it was a very good match, to be honest. We've asked Mr. McMillan to uh, evaluate using his painter's artistic ability to... Uh, portrait painter, that is. Portrait painter ability to assess this, and he says that he thinks the mouth match in this example was pretty good. The eyes weren't bad, but the nose is way off. But of course, they're only going to get better at this. They're going to look at more pictures, look at more DNA, look at more pictures, look at more DNA. And um, considering the ability of computers to make multiple millions of calculations, well, this has got to be a bit disturbing. Admittedly, it would be of great help to police forces. You know, you've got somebody's DNA at a crime scene. It'd be nice to be able to, you know, get the make on him. But, uh, you know, even Dr. Craig Venner is now pointing out that this technology has some other implications for privacy. He considers that genomic information should now be treated as personal information, even if it is presented as an anonymized sequence of letters, which is currently the case. One thing that's quite intriguing is a related piece of... Uh, AI-based uh, research, which says that they now be able, they now may be able to use pictures from Facebook or other sources and um, diagnose disease. This is rather intriguing. You look at enough disease states compared to enough pictures, patterns are going to emerge that are going to be useful. This could help medicine quite a bit. Also might help insurance companies find ways to deny you care by saying, oh, he doesn't even know, but he's got kidney cancer. And let's not insure this guy. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think that's all we're going to say about that topic today. We did encounter an old file. We've encountered a lot of old files in, in the wake of um, Radio Parallax's Move West that uh, were never discussed in the many years we amassed them for the use in Radio Parallax. A lot of them are not uh, time-dependent and uh, will be used in the future. We know, an awful lot of astronomy stuff, because doggone it, we like astronomy on this program, and we do want to note that some years back we talked some good, to some good people from Jet Propulsion Laboratory down in Pasadena about the then brand spanking new Cassini mission to Saturn. Cassini is um, about to roll down the curtain after some spectacular successes over the past a dozen or so years. It's now going to crash into Saturn because some people are afraid that future spacecraft might crash into it, which we think is pretty idiotic. Nevertheless, the bureaucracy decided to crash it into Saturn. There will be some, you know, interesting science gathered, we hope, as the spacecraft, uh, you know, enters the Saturnian atmosphere and burns up. Still seems like a damn waste to have that much hardware out at Saturn, you know, because if we go to visit there again, or, you know, someday, a century from now, humans get out there... You know, every little bit of matter is going to be useful. Mr. McMillan suggested you know, they could cart some plutonium out there and refuel the thing, which is possible. And uh, we pause a moment to note that that sound, which you may be hearing in the background, is that of a September rainstorm taking place in the Bay Area as some moist, hot air from 
Mexico, we presume, works its way up the California coast, as it sometimes does in September. Quite a remarkable show of lightning and thunder uh, in the greater Fremont area. Uh, took place a couple hours ago, which we were a witness to. Uh, surely nothing like what the good people in Cuba or Tampa Bay are receiving the brunt of at the moment. And, you know, our best wishes go out to Floridians currently under the gun and Cubans. And, you know, I, I hate to be uncharitable, but, eh, but then again, it's never stopped us before. And note that Texas took a big hit recently. Um, and and we're, just, we're just frankly a little less sympathetic to the good people of Houston because they had an opportunity not to build in their floodplain, but jackass real estate developers, as they usually do in most municipalities, carry the day, and they built a lot of buildings where they shouldn't have. So when it rained, they flooded. Duh! Of course, we should remind listeners at this point that, that America's second greatest flood threat comes not from the hurricane belt of the south, but actually, apparently, in Sacramento, where a coalition of greedy developers and, let's just say, possibly corrupt politicians, got together to develop in the Natomas floodplain, which had not previously been developed, because it's a floodplain! But after building more levees, apparently, uh, uh, Robbie Waters' son, I forget his name, uh, apparently signed off and said, no, we got 200-year flood protection. Yeah, perhaps his name should have been Scotchin' Waters. But yeah, when they discovered to their surprise later that, gosh, you know, the the levees really weren't that good, and we do, face a, we do face a terrible flood risk, but you know what? It's too late to stop the development now. So they didn't, and they built in the floodplain. So one day... Perhaps in the future, when you see pictures of them helicoptering people off the roof of the gym at the high school built out in Rancho Sub Rosa or whatever, and the local politicals say, gee, it's a darn shame, we just, we didn't foresee this. Well, you'll know the real story. It had to do with money and corruption. Speaking of money and corruption, (laughs) we're not surprised to note that here in the East Bay, same rules apply. Stuff gets built where they probably shouldn't build because somebody made a buck on it, or is about to make a lot of bucks on it, and along the way, he greased the skids with the local politicos. But yeah, actually, we probably should pause a moment to, uh, to thank fate for the fact that Mr. McMillan's significant other, hard at work down in the Caribbean, was spared the brunt of Hurricane Irma through, well, luck. Evidently, the tropical cyclone... Uh, the huge Atlantic tropical cyclone took a right turn before it got to her neighborhood. And yes, we too did get a kick out of the fact that um, noted bloviator Mr. Rush Limbaugh, after assuring the public that all of this talk of Hurricane Irma being such a big threat and, you know, related to global warming was all just a bunch of hot air, did in fact evacuate his sorry fat ass. Someone did post on a social network that, you know, Rush Limbaugh should probably be prosecuted for all the harm he did by telling people that they shouldn't run away from the hurricane, to which I believe that someone, perhaps me, responded by saying, anyone stupid enough to follow what Rush Limbaugh says deserves whatever happens to them. You know, since we are still heard on radio station KDVS, I think I'll throw in a disclaimer at this point to note that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily reflect the views 
of KDVS, its sponsors, or the regions of the University of California. I now also ask the course staff at KDVS to please put the word necessarily back on the disclaimer when you guys read it. Somehow they got dropped a while ago. I did hear someone recently do a disclaimer, and darn it, I can't remember quite where, <laughs> can't remember where it was, where they pointed out that whatever station it was did not necessarily reflect the views of their parent entity, no matter how true they might be, or words to that effect. Because as we pointed out before, you can't really say they don't reflect the views of KDVS sponsors or blah, blah, blah. Because when we say that the sun rises in the east, we're pretty sure that the station's not taking an opposing position. Let's do a little forward promotion on the program. We expect in the next week or two to interview author Martha Brockenbrough about her new book, Alexander Hamilton, Revolutionary. Alexander Hamilton, of course, has been hot stuff on Broadway of late, thanks to the rap musical, or is it called hip-hop musical? We confess to having had some reservations about a rap musical based on a founding father previously, but if to reach modern audiences you have to have Thomas Jefferson saying things like, yo, yo, yo! Well, so be it, but we want no part of it. How different is that from a rock musical about Jesus? Should be noted for the record that Mr. McMillan hates musicals of every stripe. I don't hate anything. They hate me. <laughs> to my knowledge, the only exception he's willing to make is for The Wizard of Oz. I do want to note that having heard about Alexander Hamilton as a boy, I was intrigued in high school, of course. I, I presume all of you, dear listener, had many discussions about the founding of the United States of America and the battles for how the nation should be organized went on and how um, two of the main protagonists in this battle to shape the future course of America were Thomas Jefferson versus Alexander Hamilton. It seems clear looking back upon it that both men won in part. Hamilton's vision clearly dominated what would later become the northern states of the United States where one could say Jefferson seemed to have carried the day in the southern part of the United States, which unfortunately appears to have led directly a generation or two later to the great American Civil War and to the divide which still separates the north from the south in the U.S. of A. Anyway, we do look forward to talking about one of America's most fascinating figures, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, in, in reading this book, one thing did strike me especially hard, was that the guy that really backed Hamilton, the guy who basically made Alexander Hamilton his right-hand man, was the man on the dollar bill, our first president, George Washington. We don't hide the fact that we are great admirers of our first president here at Radio Parallax, if for no other reason than the fact that at the conclusion of the Revolutionary War and the chaos that ensued, the probably most natural course of events was to have made... George Washington, in essence, a new king. Our understanding is, and I wish I had the, the exact quote in front of me, was that Napoleon, near his deathbed, made a statement to the effect that, well, they wanted me to be Washington. And of course, Bonaparte, being Bonaparte, wanted no part of that. He wanted to be the emperor, which he did make himself. Washington resisted the temptation for which he deserves all the credit in the world. He also was the main backer of Alexander Hamilton. And it's rather intriguing to note that that. Among his political enemies, Hamilton could count John Adams, the second president, Thomas Jefferson, the third president, James Madison, the fourth president, and James Monroe, the fifth president, who he damn near got engaged in a duel with.
And the whole dual thing is just, it just, I remember being haunted by it as a kid. Like, why did this, this interesting man get involved in the duel and get shot to death? Seemed pretty dumb as a kid. Actually, still seems pretty dumb as an adult. It appears he let his vanity get the best of him, but we'll save that for our discussion about the great Alexander Hamilton, like I said, either next week or the week after. All right, we're overdue for a break, so let's take one. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Parallax.